Welcome to the Thought Lounge podcast. A Thought Lounge is an in-person, formatted dialogue with three to six people on the topics they are most passionate about. This week's special guests are UC Berkeley Professor of Music, David Moroni, and UC Berkeley Professor of Political Science, Darren Zook. Participants and topics include Professor Moroni on false facts, Emily Kramer on if you rest, you rust, Jacob Nicolau on defining the object in sociology, Axel Kramer on perfect posture, and Professor Zook on politics of time. For more information and to sign up, please visit thoughtlounge.org. Enjoy! So um, I don't really have a, a name for what I want to talk about, but it's an idea or a bunch of ideas, a cluster of ideas that keep resurfacing, bubbling up in different ways as a result of teaching in Berkeley, as a result of a professional career as a musician and so on. And perhaps one of the easiest ways to open the subject is to say that I really believe that what most people on the Berkeley campus think we do in the music department is not at all what we think we do in the music department. In other words, what we mean when we talk about studying music, even at a professorial level, doing serious intellectual research into music, is not only not understood, but in some cases people simply don't believe it's possible. Mm. They don't really understand how music can be an object of intellectual activity. They think that what we do is spend our time here practicing down in the practice rooms, playing our scales, and learning how to give concerts. Of course, that is what they do at Juilliard and at conservatories, the San Francisco Conservatory, but we're a university music department on a research campus, and we do something else. So, um, that seems to me that everybody, a lot of people, have a sort of wrong idea of what we do here. So if I had to put a title, I think I would go for um, a phrase, what color should I choose, red, um, that is from Darwin, that has a phrase I've always liked. It's from The Descent of Man. It's the last section of The Descent of Man. I think it's 1871. And it's right at the beginning. And I quote this to almost all my students, in fact. Um, false fact are highly injurious to the progress of science. Now, there's a lot of things packed into that thought. Um, As he actually goes on to say, uh, false facts are highly injurious to the progress of science, for they often endure long. But false views, so he makes a distinction between false facts and false views, if supported by some evidence, do little harm, for everyone takes a salutary pleasure in proving their falseness. And when this is done, one path towards error is closed, and the road to truth is often at the same time opened. I love that phrase, and I think it it really uh, brings us face to face with false facts. I mean, anybody can think of some obvious We'll all have our own little list of favorite false facts. Um, The stars are attached in a crystal sphere. They believed that for hundreds of years, a crystal sphere that's circulating above the Earth, which, of course, is flat. Uh, There's another false fact that because people believed it, it stopped the progress of science. But I can think of all sorts of false facts about music that people have that are... Uh, hindering their knowledge. After all, what what else does science mean except knowledge? The word means knowledge. And um, 
a false fact about music, for example, can block the way people understand it. So that brings me to one of my, my pet uh, peeves, and I'll probably be making some enemies here by going into this one. Um, I was looking up this morning on the website of the very uh, splendid Aspen Institute, um, which is a, an institute for sport, especially sport for children. And they actually have a, a page, www.aspenprojectplay.org, the facts. Whenever I see facts, now I get nervous. Is it a false fact or a real fact? So on the page called the facts, there's a section called the benefits, the benefits of sport for children. One, regular physical activity benefits health in many ways. Sports participation is a significant predictor of young adults' participation in sports. That seems a very curious one to me, but still. <laughs> um, three, organized sports activity helps children develop and improve cognitive skills. Four, high school athletes are more likely than non-athletes to attend college. Physical activity and sports in particular can positively affect aspects of personal development among young people. This is a really curious one. Female high school athletes are less likely to be sexually active, to use drugs, and to suffer from depression. Where's that one coming from? Or perhaps more to the point, where is it going to? Who's it addressed to? And seven, parents appreciate these benefits. So those are the seven reasons, seven reasons given why it's good to get your kids involved with sports. Now, I have nothing against sport and nothing against the, the Aspen Institute's uh, support of sport. But a whole slew, I mean hundreds, literally hundreds, of scientific studies by uh, reputable peer-reviewed teams have shown clear evidence that all of those things can be got from musical training as well. Musical skills for young children and for not-so-young children and teenagers and so on um, help in the development of mental and physical health. That's well proven. Responsibility to yourself and to others in the projects that you collaborate in. Uh, persistence. It teaches you persistence because you have to work, 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 work again, practice until it's each time a little bit better, just like with uh, practicing in sports. Develops courage in coping with stress because like sports, performance is a really high stress activity that, you know, you sweat when you're out there on stage and you are scared and you have to... You get used to it as a performer, but you only ever get used to it. It doesn't go away. You just learn how to cope with it. You develop muscular skills of a very particular kind, and often very athletic kind. Watch an organist playing a complicated organ recital with their two legs going and their arms going. and It's, it's very highly uh, physical. Social skills to do with rehearsal and performing are obviously very highly developed. And I maintain split-second timing and precision are of a vastly sharper kind than you get in any sport uh, that we develop in, in music. But on top of that, music develops you. Anybody who does music at a very early age, they have better language skills, reading skills, memorization skills, all those things. So these are just uh, the things that are all scientifically proven. You get public speaking skills as well. Singing even helps people who stutter. It helps them get over their stutters. And the most important thing, to come back to what Axel was saying, is music, its premise, the starting point, is teaching you to listen to other people, that you can't do anything without listening to other people. So why do we spend so many more millions and billions of dollars on sports than we do on music? 
why, I, no, maybe I won't go into why uh, Cal at the moment has its 445 million debt for the football stadium, but I could go there. That would be another, <laughs> another thought lounge, maybe. But um, I think that uh, what it comes down to, and I want to link it with this fact that uh, people think that we do one thing in this building when we're actually doing something else, is that the whole other side of music um, is to do with the emotions and the expression of the emotions. And there's, uh, let's say, they're sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of what people want to develop in their children, perhaps. Um, and there's a fear of expression of emotions. And I think that, uh, I, I only have to think of when I was growing up, and my father actually said to me that music wasn't a good career for a boy, that music was all right for a girl. I mean, the sexism Im implicit in that was, was extraordinary, but that it's not a good choice for a boy, um, whereas, of course, sciences was considered all right. And so I think that in uh, the misunderstanding about what we do in, in music, both with performance and thinking intellectually about it, um, is tied in with this fear of the emotional world that music expresses. And I think that, therefore, the two are very deeply linked with both sexism and homophobia, because I think that uh, the idea of discouraging boys from going into music, uh, a lot of it is based on the sort of implicit fear that if the boy is getting too interested in developing musical skills and he's going to be sensitive and playing music, that the parents are afraid he's going to turn out gay. And uh, we see that again and again. And there's a truth to it. Uh, music does attract more LGBT people. Um, partly because it is a sort of safe profession. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean to say that homophobia isn't alive and well within the musical profession. But these are all the things that are, are going around in my mind, this, these false facts uh, about what music is, um, but above all, this unspoken thing that we don't talk about, which is to do with the, the importance of developing the emotional side and the fear of that. Uh, among a lot of people. And I think that's, that's why we spend so many millions on sports, and whereas if we would spend those same millions on music, we would actually reap a much bigger benefit in terms of all the cognitive development of children. So I'm probably not at my 12 minutes, but that's sort of what I wanted to say. So by all means, chip in and uh, question yeah. or... Well, I mean, I love the idea of what you're, what you're talking about, because it's something I I've always wondered. We can get to you know, the city of San Francisco to spend billion dollars on a stadium, but to fund the opera, to fund a symphony, um, there's always this fight over whether that's a good use of funds and things like this. And I think part of what you're getting at is, is <coughs> I think, the social education of music, music, because we have, we have popular music, which is readily accessible, but when you get into more cerebral music, you know, like I don't even like the term classical music because it implies mm. there's some time distance. And I think people relate mm. to sports because it's like, oh, the struggle of the 60-minute game but they don't understand that every piece of music has the same drama built into it. You just It's yeah. perhaps less accessible because we weren't educated into it. Um, and so I, I think part of it is the way, as you say, people misunderstand what you do here in the music department. I think people misunderstand music in general outside of what is within their comfort zone. Whereas, for some reason, sports seems to be something everyone relates to. So I'd like to jump off of that and just make a, a couple of points that I've been thinking of. First and foremost, that was beautiful. Um, I, I would like to say that I performed with the Colburn Conservatory for several years prior mm. to coming to Berkeley on uh, clarinet, bass clarinet, and saxophone. Mm. 
in their in their youth ensemble, and it was something we always lamented collectively as a group that um, there is just never enough money in the music in the music field. But I think that this is a, a compilation of several things. One, I mean, I can sit down and enjoy Percy Granger, but this is something I was sort of acculturated into because I grew up in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, I think it's sort of an, a, a national phenomena because I do think that there are places in which the idea of music as a popular act is alive and well. Um, but it's definitely not in the United States. But I think it's because there is a scale issue, actually, quite literally. In other words, it's very hard for a symphonic orchestra to, a perform, in a, to perform in a stadium. Mm. Right, you can only really cap, and also uh, concert halls are just very expensive to build. Seat per seat, I would I would venture a guess that a nice stadium is actually cheaper to build co- relative to the cost of the seat and the amount that you can get per seat than, for example, a symphonic hall. So I think that there is just a commercialization element. That's but it, I I like that point a lot. But isn't it also uh, how, how should I put it? Music has moved into the 21st century in the sense that you can have the symphony orchestra in your headphones. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't need to be in. Whereas there's something about the live experience in the stadium that people feel is is different. Um, just like the live experience in the opera house or the orchestra is different, obviously. Mm. So um, we need to have a new thinking for the 21st century with the new technologies. Well, I, I deeply I deeply love actually going to the symphony just to respond and then we'll we'll move on. But um, what I actually think is always fascinating, and this is not my topic at all, but the idea that it would be possible for me to see you know the Berlin Philharmonic through virtual reality goggles. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know this is a strange dream, but it's something I've always wanted to do. Um, so actually, can I go next? Sure. Yeah. That so was time. thank you for that. I'm gonna go after you if that's all right. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll if you wanted to go now, I didn't mean to jump into your ear. What are you talking about? I, I was going to talk about defining the object in social science. Can I go? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just felt like it really worked into that. So I, I feel like mine really ties in to yours, David. Um, in, in this sense <coughs> of a, a cultural almost fear of, of the thing that we're talking about. Um, and so my topic came to me through a um, huge, you know, those big bus advertisements that are on the, the bus stop. And this one is on Durant and Dana. And it says, if you rest, you rest. And this sign, um, it makes me really angry every time I walk past it, which is fairly often. And that's for two reasons. One, it's untrue. Um, we know from, if we take, and again, I'm, I'm going to speak more on a personal level rather than quoting all the facts to you because we can look these up. But science shows rest is actually really important um, in terms of functioning well intellectually, physically, relationally, overall well-being. Um, if you look at the scientific studies on rest, it's crucial. And we know this not just from a strictly scientific perspective, but we can see this culturally in most religions and ways of spirituality, there is an element of rest, whether that's meditation or prayer and reflection or Sabbath. Um, And so 
we we know that this is something that matters. We should know that this is something that matters. And the second reason that this makes me really angry is that this is not what the Cal community needs to hear, right? <laughs> this is, um, I mean, we, we have a hard enough time with, with sleep, let alone rest. With sleep, you know, we push it off, we brag about how little we have. Oh, I only got 12 hours. You know, it's a, not 12 hours, two hours. Well, that's 12, 12 hours. hours is for the week. It is, exactly. 12 hours is for the week. It's a status symbol. How little can you sleep? Because that shows, we'll talk a little bit later about what that shows. Um, and, of course, the same goes for sleep. We know, scientifically, that with less sleep, you are less creative. You're less able to perform intellectual tasks, your physical well-being suffers, your relationships suffer, and yet we we still have this resistance. But at least we talk about it. We talk about sleep. We don't talk about rest. Like, how many people are like, oh, yeah, I only got one hour of rest this week. Or better yet, you know, oh, I had the greatest rest time. It was wonderful. You know, you don't, that's not something that we talk about. Um, I think that we, as a campus community, um, really buy in to this. We really, really believe that if you rest, you rest, or if you rest, something terrible will happen. <coughs> um, and that doesn't end when you graduate. Like, this is something that we see and that I've seen in fellow students who graduated and entered the working world, that there continues to be this deep, almost fear of rest. And that this is something that I think that we struggle with as, as a society, um, particularly in the US. So rest, we know that it's critical to our well-being on so many levels. And we know that our American society and especially our Cal society, our Cal community, um, really has a huge problem with it. Like, there is something about rest that freaks us out and that we do not want to engage with. Um, so today, I'm really excited for us to talk about this taboo subject, um, to talk about something that we really never talk about. Um, and I'm particularly excited about this because we're all coming from different stages of life. You know, Jacob and I are both students. Axel has just graduated, you know, entering into a startup in the working world. You two are, you know, at the height of your careers, the peak of your fields. Um, and so I'd like to talk about a, a few questions that I have, which are maybe, why, why don't we rest? Why is there this negative narrative around rest, this fear of rest? Um, and then also, do you rest? Um, and if so, how? And why? And if not, why not? Like, what do you think is going on there in yourself? Um, so both at a societal level and then you, day to day. What's going on with rest? Ooh, I actually I, I love this question deeply. Um, this is something that I've actually done, however strange this may seem, like actual academic work on, which was not restful. Uh -huh. um, and <laughs> so... Here would be my argument. I would say that when you talk about resting, I think it's sort of in almost like a so yeah, almost like a Bordeauxian sense. Uh, so almost in like this frame sense, it's counterposed with the concept of a recreate, right? So 
it's like there's like the idea of like rest and work and you can say those are opposed but i think mm-hmm. in our modern understanding it's actually rest and recreation at least this is my argument um and if you think about it right like i had to work with a lot of these weird theorists like e.p thompson and david lanes and moshe pushstone not like with them but with their work and they talk about the building of contemporary understandings of time and temporality. And I mean, this is crucial to your discipline, actually, because you deal, and the musicians know this perfectly well, with sort of this equally delineated abstract unit of time that has no relation to anything else, right? And we live with these equally delineated units of abstract time. I mean, you know, our technology works in the picoseconds or in the, you know, tenth to the negative power of ten fractions of a second. Mm -hmm. But the second is itself uh, an abstractly defined unit of measure, right? Like, in fact, the 24-hour day is not the natural denurial day, right? And when you incorporate this kind of temporality, right, you begin measuring your life against this abstract time, and it actually is a crucial tenet of our contemporary labor practices because you actually sell. You sell your time, right. right? So when you rest, you actually step outside of this uh, idea of sort of selling your time and then expending the benefits of that sale right into the society right whilst when you recreate you actually like harness those resources which you've somehow earned Mm -hmm. right so if you go out to dinner or if you go to a movie theater it's sort of more i would even argue like culturally inculcated right Mm -hmm. because then you're expending the resources that you've acquired through the sale of your abstract time when you rest you actually like need to force yourself to stop thinking about the amount of time you're spending resting, right? Because right. it's stressful. <laughs> yeah. a, sorry, go ahead. Say it's not real rest if you're thinking of the time you're spending resting. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But this is actually an incredibly sort of fearful activity for people, right? The idea of not thinking about the time, I would argue. So then is your argument that the part of the reason it's so fearful is because you're taking yourself out of this sort of market conception of time? Yes, yeah, I would argue. I think Berkeley also has the problem of, of social pressure, that you feel socially mm-hmm. guilty, yes. that you're falling behind your fellow students, yes. which is why something like that is exactly right. It's like, everyone's already stressed out around here, so that's the last thing they need to see is like, oh, I was going to rest, but not anymore. <laughs> I'm going to rest. Um, and I wonder how much of it is socially driven, because elsewhere in the United States, there are plenty of laid-back places, I mean, different conceptions of cultural mm-hmm. time, but camp here at Berkeley, um, I think especially among undergraduate students, that, that social pressure not to rest and to feel like you're inadequate compared to others who are you know, pulling all-nighters with ease. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like that in the Bay Area in the 1970s, mm. where it was much more laid back. And it still has the reputation for being that. People often on the East Coast, they talk about Berkeley. You see this whether it's in uh, uh, television series. I remember in The West Wing, for example, C.J. Craig, the, the uh, assistant at the White House, she was always having her leg pulled because she was from Berkeley and every, people were always telling her about the fact that she's so laid back and so relaxed. Whereas, in fact, everybody here knows it's not the case here. People are extremely intense. But it's funny, what you uh, talk about, it, especially the if you rest, you rust, uh, it's sort of like, you know, if you, uh, you know, it's, it's the principle of sort of use it or lose it. It's mm. the idea that you've got to keep all the time uh, actively doing something. And I think we'll get to this in when we get to the connections, I'm sure. But to me, that links instantly with what I was talking about. Because what it is there is a fear of stopping. It's mm-hmm. a fear of, let's put the word on the table, passivity. That we've got to be always in the active mode. 
Whereas, how can we take in new things unless we become passive? That's what it means. We've got to take things in. We've got to listen. That's what listening is all about. So, it's very funny because in music we have this thing called the rest. It's part of musical notation. We've got lots of different symbols for it. And musicians know, especially orchestral musicians or singers, that when they have a bunch of rests, it's among the most stressful time because they're busy mm. counting, trying to work out when they're supposed to do their next note. Mm. Uh, rests are not peaceful while you're actually performing. And yet, for, for <laughs> musicians, we have to learn to be passive as well, to take in. And I think um, that's maybe one thing that music can help us to focus in on. That's what listening is all about. You, uh, you asked if we rest, and I can tell you this, I'm a massive believer in rest. Um, I think it's the most creative time. Mm. Um, and there have been several people, uh, you know, several philosophers who, who would always rest, but they always had paper nearby because that was the moment when your, mm. your brain rejuvenates, and that's when you get your best ideas. And the fear was always that you'd wake up this wonderful idea, and if you didn't write it down, it would be lost. Um, and I think I think that is what's lost is this idea is that we think of rest as when you're not doing anything, but in fact, recreate, recreate is to recreate. Um, the idea is that rest could be, in fact, the most prolific time you have. I would I would agree. Rest can be wonderful, but um, I also think that in Berkeley, right, especially when you talk about intensity, I think of it more as uh, talking about like I would almost argue marginal differentiation. Where, Can you define that? Yeah, I'm about to define it. <laughs> where um, I'm in like a lecture hall with 200 of my peers, and there is uh, an economics professor, God forbid, a political scientist, at the front of the hall, and uh, he's looking out at us, and what he sees is he's 200 people who, on sort of the bell curve of life, are all within a fraction of percent of each other, right? Like, you are literally talking about these minuscule differentiations in intelligence, right? In other words, the smartest person in your class and the stupidest person in your class, unless you have somebody who magically got in here through cheating or somebody who is a 16-year-old genius, um, will be the uh, very close to one another. And so it's literally a, like, effort in, grade out exchange, because the only way you get ahead is by literally doing more work than your peers. And... I think this is a huge issue, right, at a place like Berkeley, because we have such a small spread of intellectual capability. Everyone here is so high-functioning, mm. or at least everybody who I deal with. Do you have a closing thought? I just wish we had more time. Okay. So, could I go? Would you like to go? Yes, I would love to. Okay. Chomp it out a bit. So... Uh, <laughs> This is what I'd like to talk about. I know my topic sounds dry, but I think everybody here will actually really enjoy it. I'd like to talk about, I guess what we would say is like defining the object in social science. And what do I mean by this? So uh, let's just say I'm talking to a psychology major. I don't actually know any, but let's just imagine. Um, so you're a psychology major. I can engage with you in a question on psychology, right? But you're in this like field of psychology and you can't really answer a question on, for example, uh, philosophy of mind or phenomenology or epistemology for me, right? For that, I need to speak to a philosopher. And simultaneously, you probably don't really know that much neurobio either, right? Like, this is very clear in the hard science because we can actually say, like, because these fields are so all defined at this point, right? Mm. Like, you actually have these minuscule, very elegant subsets where somebody deals with, you know, nuclear isotope chemistry for things that are in this specific subset of nuclear isotopes and only on the industrial scale. And you know, and this is like their specific little field of chemistry and everyone else is something else. And so you have this like beautiful little web of scientists, each of which is like, yes, I'm an expert on this protein. 
You want to talk about another protein? Talk to that guy. You know, but in social science, we don't really have that luxury uh, unless you're talking. We, we just don't. Right. And so I think it's really challenging because often I'll get these questions in, in my classes here. And I know they're written by graduate students because they're such haphazard questions. And and I'll literally look at this and I'm like, OK, this is a sociology class and this is not a sociological question. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you're asking me to, for example, analyze something with, that has to do with folk knowledge and Sociology really isn't the art of folk knowledge. I would say that that's anthropology, you know? Uh, well, w- there's a big argument there, but uh, yeah, I have a soft spot in my heart for sociologists. Um, so, or like political science, right? Like political science is at this point kind of trying to be very empirical and quantitative, right? So if you're, tr- if you're asking a political scientist, for example, what Black Lives, uh, Lives Matter protesters are thinking, this is maybe the wrong question to ask them, asking them about organizational methodologies, risk factors, how the state responds to these things, different mechanisms of state and media response. Like this is more of what I would conceptualize as a political scientist's question, right? As opposed to what are these people thinking, right? And so when I see on CNN, they have a political scientist on the television and then they ask them, uh, what are the protesters in the street of Oakland thinking? I get kind of frustrated because I'm like, really, this is, you should be asking somebody who does like ethnography, right? You should be asking someone who's on the ground talking to these people. Political scientists have a tendency, at least in my experience, and you're sort of more on this empirical social science side, correct me if I'm wrong, but to study things from like 10,000 feet, kind of, that's sort of a tendency of their field, right? Like, I don't think they can really answer very many questions about how soldiers feel in war, right? I would say that's more of even like a a literary or a philosophical or a sociological question, but not a poli-sci one, right? And this is something that I really struggle with because how do you, when, when like you want to do research, it's really hard to figure out what questions you actually know how to answer because mm. it's much easier to find something you find interesting as opposed to something you actually know how to find the solution for. And I'm curious if you guys have butted up against these kind of issues um, and how, if at all, you've worked to resolve them. I, I was about to say that my experience would tend to be that it's about half and half about uh, tackling questions in research that you know how to answer as against things that you're interested in. Yes, there's a lot of cases where people launch out into a research topic because they're interested in the topic and they have no idea about the answer. But there's also people who are a little bit, they progress more safely, that this is a safe next step because I know how to do it. This is a safe next And indeed, we often advise them as we're advising theses, you know, okay, we can see how you're going to do this. And that's actually what the dissertation prospectus is all about, trying to work out, do you know how to get from A to B, even though we don't quite know what the journey is going to be. Um, so I'm not quite sure that I agree entirely, or maybe uh, I misunderstood what you were saying uh, about um, uh, being less interesting to to do what you know you can do. So I'm not saying it's less interesting. I'm saying that um, I'm, for example, I'm not I'm not a scientist, right? So in in the way that like I'm trained to think, right? Like literally in in the social science departments at Berkeley, uh, I'm not. Like, a scientist can only answer, like, a scientific question, right? Like, fundamentally speaking, like, a biologist, they can answer a question about neurochemistry. Like, I can actually present them with a research topic that nobody has answered, and given, you know, of time and resources and money, if there is, like, a concrete answer that can be sort of empirically defined, they can, and we, we would believe, right, in the eventuality to find it. But 
if you ask them an epistemological question, the closest they can do is get you a biological approximation, if that makes sense, right? Isn't that a manifestation of some kind of oppression? I'm taking, mm. uh, uh, deliberately taking the opposite tack here. Um, why should scientists only be able to answer in terms of a scientific thinking? Why shouldn't scientists also be allowed to say what they feel? Um, because, because if you put what you because yeah because it's not scientific that's what yeah. I'm saying. Well, why, why shouldn't I have scientists the be allowed to be non-scientific? Just like why shouldn't musicians be allowed to be scientific? Well, because there are these institutions like universities yeah. that actually define what a scientist is. And if you start talking about how you feel, you'll get punished by the institution by but not getting tenure. That because you're judging it beforehand by having this this preset system that you expect, like a pigeonhole that you expect people to fit into, and the word for that is prejudice. So how do we, I'm not obviously well, yeah, saying yeah. that that's what you're saying, yeah. but I'm saying that that mentality which says that scientists can only behave like scientists and ask scientific questions and musicians can only do musical things, isn't that reductive? Doesn't well, it reduce everything? I'm not saying that it's actually, I'm sorry, I'll just say one thing and then, I'm not saying it's my pigeonhole, but there no, is I like know, a national, but there yeah. is like a national association of political scientists, and yeah. they have a roster, and they have a list of all of the people who they say are actually political scientists mm -hmm. and if you're not on that roster political science journals are very tentative to publish you you know mm -hmm. and this is a huge issue I mean like people don't face this if they're not in academia a lot of times but it's a huge problem I would but, argue but, but because I mean, all the recent studies in identity politics and all of that shows us that that kind of category which is uh, what's happening there is they're both being inclusive and exclusive at the same time. They're drawing up the list of the, the in-crowd, mm -hmm. and therefore that's inclusive, but they're also excluding everybody else who isn't part of it. Well, the no act of inclusion can ever be anything other than exclusive mm -hmm. at the same time. Well, the in-crowd also defines what kind of questions the in-crowd can answer. In other words, there are certain things that political science as a discipline just won't touch, because it recognizes that this is not our disciplinary space. And do you think right. that's a good thing? Or are you saying it's a, a good thing or a bad thing or just a... No, I'm saying as a person who desperately wants to be an academic, right? Myself. Sure. It's, it's, a, it's a bad, it's a bad, it's a bad, like, dream, but I have it. You know, it's hard to grapple with. It's a dream. Oh, yeah. But as a person who desperately wants to be an academic, right, how do you do social science, right, in this kind of a disciplinary space that's so rigorously defined and so, like cuboid and separated. I would make an argument that there's an increasing move away from that, at least at, yeah, I at Berkeley. So. I think that on this campus, um, yes, there are those institutionally defined fields, right, where we say this is political science and this is how we define it, and if you're doing something different, that's not political science. But I think that at the same time, there is a a definite movement toward political scientists saying, here is something, here's a question that I don't know how to answer because this is not what I'm trained in. And so I'm going to bring in a sociologist and a psychologist and maybe a neurobiologist and maybe just to shake things up a bit, a data scientist. And together we are going to formulate a research question that only the comb our combination can answer. So rather than breaking down those fields, which maybe is something that needs to happen, and there are some theorists that argue for that, um, recognizing that I think at this point in time, there is so much knowledge in each field, and that specialization is to some extent necessary in order to have expertise, right? In order to, in order to go one step higher. But you can bring those people together. Maybe only one person can know everything about that protein. You can't know everything about every protein. Somebody has to know everything about the one. But you can bring all those people together 
and reach a larger question about maybe how those proteins interact. So right? my distinction is between knowledge and methodology, right? In other words, I actually think that there's methodological training that's being very exclusive, right? And you have this sort of yeah. deeply Durkheimian argument, right, where we will perfect academia through this increased division of labor, right? But I actually fundamentally disagree with this, personally, right? Because um, I think that certain questions and certain research topics are actually most appropriately answered by certain disciplines because there was for a very long time a debate in the world of who is sort of going to take the mantle of defining human interaction and uh, social space, right? And this was sort of a huge flame war between the philosophers and the sociologists, you know? And, and this took, you know, decades to resolve, and, you know, the philosophers are still fighting. But so, it's... Would, wouldn't it be more inclusive as a, an approach to not say that certain disciplines are more appropriate to answering certain kinds of questions, which is sort of obviously true. I think we're, we'll all mm -hmm. sign on to that. But nevertheless, the danger of saying that is that it, because it's reductive, you close down the possibility that different disciplines will come up with completely different answers, mm. which will be different well, they're and will be speaking questions. to somebody else. So they're answering different questions. Yeah, but my question is, as a person who really wants to do social science, how do you, how do you exist in this discipline, or like how do you exist in this kind of space? Because we all have make a lot of friends. We all have, <laughs> we have that yeah. points in our lives where we have to engage with very different kinds of people. Like even when I was at a, at work, right, the HR people and the finance guys just spoke in different tongues, right? And so I'm curious as to how, because this is just a question of more difference, right? It's not even just an academia. That's more of like an example, right? How do you how do you exist in these kinds of spaces where there is this like radical intellectual division? Well, it's, it's a great question, but I think even your original question can be re-asked, and you're kind of hitting on it. You're asking, how do you define the object in social science? Mm -hmm. But I think you first have to understand how social science came into being, how we define social science, which was part and parcel of this historical trend towards specialization, which you've already alluded to. And it's true that universities moved into this kind of interdisciplinary moment, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of pushback on that right now. There's a lot mm -hmm. of this idea that, wait a minute, these divisions exist for a reason. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I sympathize with you because I've tried to straddle some of these boundaries, and a lot of it is just, you know, it's it's universities work like the world. They're like little nation states. You know, there's a reason Switzerland has a boundary, you know, from France or something, that you don't just blend things together. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. But um, you'll find that part of your work is therefore going to be to, you're going to have to redefine your field to ask the questions you want to ask. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you're bumping up against not just what's the object in social science, you're bumping up against this more fundamental question of what is social science and where did it come from. One last quick thing, which is, since you said speaking in tongues, I like to think of these differences between disciplines as that we all speak different languages. You can take the same sentence and translate it, and it makes everything seem much more closely related. Like, this is the German department. How would you say this in German? And at least we're, we're using the same question as opposed to, and I agree, that, that this idea that a political science can only ask in political science. You know, I can, I can say how to answer that in German, but I can also understand Spanish or something like that. So different ways to think about the same thing. And of course, if we were answering that question in music, it would be very different. And unlike all the other languages, it would be answering not with a sequence of words that just follow in a linear fashion, but with things that are all happening at the same time and at different levels and at different speeds. And uh, it's a much more complex form of listening and therefore of speaking. Also. Yeah. But to come back to your point, just and, uh, the bell's wrong, so we have to do that. But um, how would you define 
you know, how do you find your area of research? I think I would come back not by asking a scientific question, but you have to start with the subjective one of what are you interested in? What gives you pleasure? That's a word we haven't had around the table yet. Is it? So, yeah, uh, it's 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 a it, really really quick closing yeah. talk. To That's a very interesting. Like I, I actually don't have an answer to that. Right, I'm still figuring that one out. But it's a very interesting ideological question to me, because I actually am building off of your question of rastre, right? and there is this incredible pleasure, uh, pressure we have in our society, in in the United States especially, to experience pleasure, where I'm you almost feel guilty if you don't experience enough pleasure in your day. Like, in, at least in my life, right? If I have, like, a, a really hard day and I didn't enjoy it, like, I, I like the emotion that comes up from that is not, like, you know, sadness or, like, oh, like, I want to have a better day. It's actually guilt, right? And I think this is a very interested, like, inculcated emotional response. Um, but that's just a thought that I got from your question. I actually don't have an answer, that, unfortunately. That's a, that's a topic for another, yeah. another session about <laughs> yeah, right. guilt and pleasure or somehow. That's great. <laughs> I like it. Cool. Thank you. Great topic. Um, and then there were two. And there were two. You want to go? I'm happy to go last, or I'm sure. happy to go next. Go, go right ahead. I can go. Uh, this will be good because it's going to sort of switch things up a little bit. So I want this to be much more of a. I put myself on the clock. <laughs> um, much more of a converse, very conversational. I'm going to try to keep it really short. But ultimately, my question is: What is perfect posture? And what is its significance in your life or field? And maybe I can just give a little bit of story on how I've come to it. It's been completely unscientific, nothing. Just basically, um, in pretty much every aspect of my life, I found posture coming up. And it's sort of both a metaphorical thing and a, and a physical thing. You know, we've all just suddenly set up. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it, it's something that when you see somebody with excellent posture, you think that they have confidence. You think that they have poise. You know that they can take rest. Mm-hmm. And um, it also means that they're strong, possibly. It takes you know certain amount of energy to sit like that, but it also, in the long run, is going to increase longevity. And musically, I learned it actually when I took lessons here on the harpsichord. There's the first thing you learn is posture, both you know just for your entire body, how you sit, how you balance yourself on the seat, how you hold your hands. In um, boxing, my boxing coach, who's like, um, I used to do boxing. I never actually did face-to-face combat, but um, I trained because I liked the workout. And the, the guy taught me, without me even knowing it, he was showing us yoga and tai chi and then one day he sort of like sprung it on the class he's like guess what you guys you just learned tai chi <laughs> like um and that's all about posture and understanding these different energies that's actually happening uh with your body and it's it's a way of becoming conscious of of the energies that you're eschewing um and it extends beyond the physical uh and just the last little example i've had in my life was um I went on a hike one day, I decided to go, I started in uh, Ocean Beach, San Francisco, and I wanted to just hike north for a week. And I ended up going to um, Point Reyes. And, but the very beginning of my, um, of, of my trek, I spent like, the entire beach is like a two mile long beach, a very long beach. I spent, it took me like half the day to get it, but I wanted to make sure that I was walking correctly because I knew that with such a heavy load, that was going to be important and it really set the mood for my entire trip anyways these are my little stories and i'd love to hear yours 
Okay, I have. <laughs> Go. I want to hear everybody. So um, keep it short. Um, okay, so I just read this really fabulous um, paper for one of my classes, and it was on um, how how posture and sort of bodily control or bodily movements are um, are signaling socially, right? So this was a sociological paper. Um, and it was looking at the ways in which um, our bodies transmit and reinforce and reproduce um, things like class and all those exciting things. Um, but on a personal level, posture really came into play for me and, and related to this paper. When I read this paper, I was like, because in eighth grade, I moved to a new school and I had been really unhappy at my old school. So I was like, okay. Nobody knows me here. I'm going to fake it till I make it. I'm going to be, I'm just going to like pretend that I'm like totally on top of it and am confident and friendly and unafraid to like engage socially and, <laughs> and I'm going to see what I can do. And the first step of that was posture. Instead of, you know, sitting, cowering a bit, I, you know, would sit like this and walk like this and, um, and it worked. Like people, the way that people perceived me was totally different. Um, and the way that people interacted with me simply because of the way that I carried myself um, was transformative. And that in turn influenced the rest of, um, the rest of my you know, day-to-day, minute-to-minute experience because of the way that what I was doing was signaling and what it was signaling, just in the way that I carried myself. So it's very real. Yeah, it, it, it definitely is. And I just wanted to throw in that um, this is a very interesting phenomenon that I noticed yesterday. When I saw a man on Greek Row, probably 19, 20 years old, uh, in like torn up cargos and a drug rug, like one of those like like Venice Beach type hooded like Aztec pattern uh, sweaters. I don't know. That's yes. They're, yeah, yeah. And the person looked incredibly preppy the second I looked at them, and I was like, no, no, no. This is a person in in, in, car- in cargo shorts and a drug rug. But then I thought about it, and I'm like, oh. But somehow they're like projecting this like astute, like very uptight almost intellectual vibe and I was like oh it's because they're just like carrying themselves like they have a wooden plank tied to their back you know and this is something that's very indicative of people who like grew up sailing in Connecticut you know kind of kind of behavior and just sort of building off that right it's almost as if part of uh, defining yourself aesthetically is literally defining the way you carry yourself Mm -hmm. right and that those are deferentially valued, right? Yeah, yeah. That somebody who walks, or what we think of walks like, um, somebody who's grown up sailing in Connecticut, we look at that person, we immediately connect that with enough money to have a sailboat to engage in that kind of leisure time, and to the East Coast, and preppy, and all of these status signals that are attuned to that, versus somebody who walks in a very relaxed way, and... Um, maybe it's a little sad to be like, ah, oh, they're laid back, probably a beach bum, maybe a druggie. But they also might want to express themselves that way for a number of reasons. They might want to actually slouch precisely because they don't want to be seen as somebody from exactly. Connecticut. I was thinking when you were when, when you were talking of, of how different musicians 
mm. perform intentionally. Mm. Um, when you get into you know grunge music, the guitars are very low. You have to almost kind of slouch, reach over, yeah. and that's very intentional. I'm not from you know if you had a if you had a grunge band you know coming out of Seattle that was <laughs> yeah <laughs> standing upright, it would look this is really odd. Um, and I think I think it's an intentional projection. It could be that we, we do make stereotypes about them, but at the same time, we may be intentionally projecting our self-image based upon our willingness to sit up versus, you know, mm-hmm. sit down. Where so, have you... I, sorry. Um, I just wanted to quickly ask, because I want to make sure I get everybody's on this, but where have you seen it in your life, personally? You mean in terms of... Posture, like where where is I, posture affected The funny life? thing is I was, I was told my whole life, my brother has great posture and I don't. So I, every time, I, I still hear the voice of both my parents, like when you, as soon as you started, because yeah. I was always told, don't slouch, don't slouch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still remember my, my, when I did my driving test at 16, uh, I got, you know, whatever what the rank was, you know, full points for everything <laughs> except posture. I got like <laughs> zero points for posture because apparently I was just kind of sitting <laughs> like this. And he was like, you can't drive. And I was, completely, I was completely unaware of it. Yeah. You were going to say something? Well, I was going to say, yes, a couple of things. First of all, I think in your presentation, Axel, that's the first time I've ever heard in one sentence a link between hopscotch playing and boxing. So (laughs) with only a comma between them, it was great. That's a historic moment. Um, But we, of course, as musicians, we take the view uh, that the body is an instrument and it's the first instrument we play. Singers know that because the body actually is their instrument, which is why singers get so upset if you tell them that for some reason you don't like their voice because it's it's not their instrument. It's not like saying to a violinist, I don't like your violin. That's less personal. But to a singer, you say, I don't like your voice. It's them, it's their body. But anybody, a, a keyboard player, a, a violinist, the first instrument we play is the muscles of our own body, which then play the second instrument, which is the musical instrument. And um, we tend to think of uh, posture as something which just has to be ergonomically thought out because there's the hours and hours and hours of practice every day and the stress, the physical stress of being on a concert stage and all of that will wreak total havoc with your muscles over a lifetime of a career. And ergonomically, the grunge guitar players down there, they're going to be in real problems after they've been doing that for 15 years. You know, there's a reason why that's not a good with your muscles and your arms at full extension. You've, you, you need to but have it your so muscles. But that so says something yeah. about the grunge players, because they're saying, you know, maybe yeah. screw it. I don't know. They're saying, years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but which brings us back to the fact that posture is essentially performative. Everything is a performance, really. And the minute we say it's performative, what we're really saying is it's a kind of rhetoric. It's a way of speaking. We're speaking with our bodies. And we all know, I mean, as professors, we have one rhetoric uh, in seminars, physical rhetoric, I mean, our bodies, uh, the way we sit around the table, or this kind of thing. It's different from what we're doing if we're giving a lecture in Wheeler Auditorium for 900 students, where obviously you're you talk differently and you present yourself differently where you've become the sage on the stage because of the nature of the the situation but in a more informal uh, situation then you adopt a different posture and that different posture is saying something it's facilitating the exchange Uh, if you came into a a seminar session and you stood there in front of a a lectern and, and read your seminar contribution it wouldn't work at all so um it's all performative. Everything is performative. Everything is performance. So actually... Uh, Including very, posture. Uh, very funnily. I'm actually currently in two graduate seminars in the Department of Sociology. Mm. And that's exactly what the professor does. He, he, no, he no. walks through the door 
and the seminar is from it's it's in the evenings and it's I believe three hours long. And he walks in and he starts talking, and he talks for two hours and fifty minutes without interruption. And it's for a seminar. Yes, and when yeah. I say without interruption, I mean I wonder if he's trained in circular breathing mm. because it's just <laughs> you know because it's just this incredible like deluge. I actually have to I can't take notes because he speaks so rapidly. So I have to record him mm. and then sit down afterwards and then like listen to 10 seconds, take a note, listen to, and it's, it's, you know, it's like this two hour, three hour long activity, just going back and taking notes on his work. Uh, and it's incredibly fascinating because it's just so shocking. I've taken, I've taken several seminars with graduate departments and every single time this happens, I almost leave with like the sense of shock and awe, you know? And I guess you can say that it's almost like a, a rhetorical mismatch between expectations, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think the, the rhetoric idea is, is interesting there. I think we're saying we all say things without words. And, I mean, clothing is another thing. It's not just posture. Clothing is also saying something. It's a kind of, of social rhetoric. Which um, you choose, presumably, carefully according to the circumstances. I just had a few thoughts. Um, one immediately off that is like, uh, this morning, you know, I have a hat somewhere. Crumbs. Darn. I'll just quickly finish it up. But, um, you know, just looking in the mirror, just getting ready to head out, and I've got a hat, and I stand pretty much the same all the time, like a pretty decent posture. When I put my hat on forward, I was like, man, you kind of look, you know, you could be going to a meeting, you could be going to watch a baseball game, and then same axle, same person, put it on backward, and it's like, bro, you know, <laughs> complete difference. So that was the first thought I had. And the second was um, just that sort of what you're talking about. Basically, posture sort of moves beyond just the alignment of your body. It moves into, it moves into the way that you move, and it moves into the, even the way that you speak and the way that you dress. And, yeah, just seeing it as a as a larger metaphor, something to be conscious of, like musicians do and tight chi people do and boxers definitely do. Mm. Tennis player, everybody. Anyways. Uh, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. I'm curious, is there an academic posture? Is there, like, a way that you're supposed to carry yourself if you're, like, an eye, if you're, like, a... There's no rules. But I think you're right, though. I think I definitely, in a seminar, at least not, the, not that version of it that you have, but I think it's much more... You know, lean in versus on a stage. We saw you weren't Paxton, so <laughs> you, you do have to project. You're right; it's, yeah. it's very performative. You're projecting. You know, it, it's half of a, a big lecture class is performance. Half is the, what you, the knowledge you're projecting. But but the whole body language in a seminar is designed to pass the subliminal message. Uh, you guys, please interrupt me. Talk. Mm. This is a conversation, mm. and that's. I mean, that's the whole point of the. Everything that you're doing, the way you're sitting around the table, the size of the room you're in. The, um, it's like lecture, you know, lecture versus dialogue. There's just this spectrum. Yeah. And you see the TED, a TED Talks person, every one of them has like the same posture. It's this, yeah. you know? And then when you see somebody who really wants to listen and be welcoming, then they're often just... Anyways, okay, I can't let my time go way over. I guess I'm last. Aaron, yeah. All right. Well, speaking of time... <laughs> Um, I just want to talk briefly about the, you know, the, the, the real question I have, and I can write it up there on the board, but it's very simple, is what time is it? Mm. Uh, because 
I started unpacking this phrase and I was filling up page after page after page with my moleskin notebook of all the different ways that that question becomes increasingly impossible to answer in any meaningful way. Um, and, you know, indirectly I was kind of inspired by, by, you know, Einstein's idea that time was not an independent variable, that it was, it was, it was as deeply embedded as all, in all the other phys- characteristics of the physical universe, and therefore it was negotiated to, inter- negotiate, you know, subject to negotiation, subject to manipulation. And I thought, well, that's the way it is actually in our social lives, both in, you know, since I worked in politics, not the kind of social science politics that you had mentioned earlier, but this idea of, of, I started thinking of countries. So India and Pakistan, for instance, are right next to each other, but they're 30 minutes apart because they can't stand to be in the same time zone. <laughs> so India just put a half hour ahead. So it's like, <laughs> we have to be a different time than them because we don't get along with them. Uh, some countries refuse to have time zones. China is all the same time zone. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's absurd sometimes because it's like okay it's nighttime over there, <laughs> but no. What unifies China is we all have the same time uh, versus here. You know, the United States actually has eight time zones. We always think it has four, but it has eight because we always forget our outerlying elements of the United States. There's also been things like you know North Korea has a different calendar. I think of all the different calendars. You know, today for instance, by the Chinese calendar, the Buddhist calendar, the Hindu calendar, it could be ten different things. Um, North Korea measures time by the birth of Kim Il Sung. So it's Juche in whatever year it is, and it's basically 1912 is the year zero. Uh, the Khmer Rouge, when they began their genocide in 1975, declared that time was had started again, year zero. And I just started thinking of all the ways in which, not only in international politics, even the creation of time zones goes back to industrial time. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that, that Greenwich Standard Time has a lot to do with empire. But I was even thinking at a personal level, you know, as we sit around here, we're all... And, and I know this has to be this way, but I, I, and, but think of how a seminar would have been 500 years ago. We wouldn't have anything on the table to say what time it is. And so a seminar started when everybody showed up, morningish, and it ended <laughs> when they thought everything. So it, it, was, it was done by the task. I have to talk about time, and if it takes me as long as I need or until I'm tired, versus I have a seminar from 7 to 10. So even as we sit here and talk, we've all become very aware of a 12-minute chunk of time, that I have to think in a 12-minute chunk of time. When that little bell goes off, and I'm amused by the fact that it's musical, mm-hmm. it just a, you know, a rude timer go off, we, 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 we change the way we think. Time, we start thinking in 12-minute chunks versus if you said, okay, you've got three hours, which, of course, we probably wouldn't be here because that would be 15 hours of talking. But, <laughs> um, but I just think it's interesting how we, you know, we... We just do this all the time. It's like, what time is it? Okay, it's one eighteen, And we start thinking, okay, I have 40 minutes to study. Mm-hmm. We, and I start thinking how liberating it is. You know, we talked about rest and recreation to not know what time it is sometimes. Uh, and, it's, and, and how hard that is for us to do. The idea of autonomy of time or being autonomous from time, which I think is powerfully liberating because it's one of these things I've actually embarked upon. I've been trying to do this. Uh, and I find it just powerfully limited, uh, not powerfully, but powerfully liberating mm-hmm. to to not care what time it is for a time. Like, like to say, you know, I'm going to put on some music and listen to it when the music is done as opposed to I've got a half hour, what can I listen to? Um, and so you start thinking of how we organize our days in chunks of time. You're right, the 24-hour day, as you said earlier, is not necessarily natural. And, and you know, the eight hours of sleep are supposed to get rest. Some people do great on four hours of sleep, others do it on eight hours of sleep, and that's really about staying in tune with your body. But if you only sleep four hours, you automatically feel guilty because someone somewhere said eight hours is what you need, so you're like, I must be sleep-deprived. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. Even the way, you know, we've been talking, I'm kind of feeding off of what we've talked about since I'm the last person to go, but even in terms of the way we consume music, 
one of the things that's difficult to do is to uh, say with with symphonic music now is to have that compete with the four minute time slot of pop music the magical four minutes mm-hmm. you know if you, if you write a pop song that's five minutes it's hard to get it out mm-hmm. you know four minutes or less is how we consume music that's just enough versus hey here's a great symphony that's an hour and 20 minutes long and the idea is that's too much time break it down for me or give me give me the, the condensed version show me the highlights and it's like well you can't really do that you have to really take a long time to just listen to this piece of music I think of you know being on campus. I see it all the time because you know that's that's what we, that's what we do. The academic calendar. The academic calendar is is you know eight to nine thirty, nine thirty to eleven, eleven to twelve thirty, and it just it goes in these time slots, and, it, and it's how we think. Now, in between those times, I try to switch to a task oriented calendar. It's like I have this to do, and I'm just going to do it. But I know at some point, if I know I have my lecture, you know, at two to three thirty, up until two o'clock, I feel that it's there, and then after I finish my lecture at three thirty. Only then can I let it go, and, and I don't want to say it's the tyranny of time, but I think it's it's, and I don't know why it's incredibly liberating to do so. But I find it incredibly liberating in terms of creativity, in terms of my mood, in terms of so many things, to become less aware of what time it is or how long it has taken me to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there are some things you can't do that with. Obviously, musical time you can't say, "Well, there's a rest." I guess I'll take a rest. You have to, like you say, it's very stressful because you're still on musical time, which is a very different form of time, and I get and I get that. But listening to music is, you know, how long is this song? People do it all the time. It's like, okay, I'm going to put on, you know, and iTunes will tell you. You have, it, you know, it has the clock is always going. If you look at iTunes, it's like 12 <laughs> minutes, 12, you know, 11 minutes. If it's a four-minute song, it's count it counts down, so mm-hmm. you know how long it is versus not looking at it and just hearing a piece of music and concentrating on the music itself versus mm-hmm. how long it is. So I've become very aware of, you know, even things like cultural time. I, I spent a lot of, I've done a lot of work in, in Oceania. And you know, island time, which we often associate with laziness, island time is really about, like Pacific Islanders often think it's arrogant to think you can do something within a specified amount of time. So if there's a meeting, you know, the efficiency says, okay, we've got a meeting, everybody talks for 12 minutes. Okay, and it is efficient because we all get this done in an hour and a half. You go to a meeting in you know the Cook Islands, and you have a meeting. It starts at twelve. Everyone shows up at one thirty. Everyone chit chats for an hour and a half, and then around four o'clock, you slowly start talking. Everybody says that's really lazy, but in fact, it's this interesting cultural thing that it's 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 arrogant to think you can control time. That efficiency has a certain cultural arrogance to it to call a meeting and then just start talking about things. So you kind of just it's, it's a form of, of interesting cultural respect. To not hurry and leave. You go see someone. You, know, you, you show up late, but you don't leave early, and you, and you just kind of linger. You know, it, it, in in a Western party, it would be an that awkward party that okay, we're all got to go home now. And the idea is you just kind of linger a little bit longer than you're supposed to to show that you're not in a hurry to leave. By sh- that's how you show you know that you're happy to be there. And I just it, it's been really interesting for me to to understand the different ways that time is consumed politically, culturally, socially, and, and at a personal level. If you want to share stories, you know, that, that idea of, of, of personally distancing yourself from the 24-hour clock going towards some other times of, of consumption of time. Any personal reflections on that? <laughs> I've never worn a watch, even in the days before there was a clock on a cell phone. In fact, I almost never carried my cell phone with me either. But, I, but I've noticed over the years that, A, I've developed a good sense of my internal clock. 
I know in a lecture when I've been lecturing for 45 minutes and this is a 50 minute lecture and there's something inside my body clock that tells me when I'm doing a one hour 20 minute lecture when I reach one hour 10 minutes you know I know where I'm going on it there's a, a development of your internal clock that works um, but I've also noticed that I've developed other skills like quickly sneaking a glance at other people's watches to know what time it is or listening very carefully for the bells of the campanile. Um, and so you get other skills which are developed, but it's great to be not tied to a watch. It's wonderful. I love the fact that the campanile is a defining piece of architecture and it does two things. It tells us what time it is all the time and it plays music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, it's very hard to separate yourself from the idea that your time is itself a commodity because it is, right? Like, you're a, a professor, right? Or even a possibly a tenured professor, I don't know. But I, I, I think all professors should have tenure, but this is a different conversation. Um, and you, you live in this sort of miracle of logistics, right? Like, that's what the university is. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of amazing that 900 people show up to the same place at the same time and leave 50 minutes to the second later. I mean, at what point in our society did we hit the organizational capacity to do that? And I actually was watching a TED Talk yesterday because that's my first version of a lazy Friday evening. And the man who invented Duolingo, who's a Carnegie Mellon professor, was talking about the fact that uh, the pyramids of Egypt, putting a man on the moon and the, um, what, what was it? There was one more thing. The construction of the Empire State Building, all, I, I believe it was a construction of the Empire State Building, don't quote me on that. Uh, mobilized exactly the same number of people to within like two or three hundred and it's a hundred thousand because there is a logistical point in which you can no longer coordinate more people than that uh, it becomes uh, unfeasible because the amount that you would need to spend on coordinating more people actually exceeds the cost of just dragging out your project longer with that size of a labor force that's sort of the maximal organizational efficiency size for any one institutionally productive thing. And the university actually organizes way more people than that, if you think about it. Because, I mean, especially if you think about like the network of universities, like the UC system, or God forbid, all of our research partners who, uh, like the labs, actually coordinate to the minute, right? Because mm -hmm. they depend on each other's results. Right. So there are bio labs all over the world that are, have, you know, that are interlinked and they're, and they're working, you know, to the second as well. I mean, these are incredible, incredible logistical feats. And I think it's hard to separate yourself away from that because there's so much value in it, right? Like literal, like literal value. Did you have something to say on that? Oh. I, I have something to say on it. <laughs> um, it's just a personal anecdote again. Uh, when I go, I go to Mexico as much as I possibly can. And um, I try to go for a week or two at a time and just go basically on to a beach my grandparents have a little beach in Mexico or a little house in Mexico and sometimes you just go on a surf trip but never bring any sort of time table and like after the week I feel so much better because my clock is set by the sun and um, I think that's something that that can be developed and like David's saying that you can really you can really develop that internal clock yeah, and ironically, only only by distancing yourself from the awareness of what time it is. That's the only way you can, otherwise it atrophies and just, you're, you're always pushing your, what time is it, what time is it. So you can only develop your internal yeah. clock if you allow it to develop. 
but it's true that time and the experience of time is very culturally varied. Um, I remember giving a concert once in Venice, and the concert was due to begin at nine o'clock in the evening. And there was I all ready to go, and there was nobody in the hall. <laughs> I said to the organizers, what's happened? Thinking I was a total flop. She said, ah, Venetian time, they'll be here. And, you know, by the time they'd got their vaporetto and crossed the lagoon, and they got, you know, we began the concert about, about quarter of ten, and that was just fine. It was very strange. I also find, um, as, a, as a European here in, in Berkeley, I, it took me a little while to get used to the precision of timing for dinner invitations. If you invite people to come for seven o'clock, they're there at seven o'clock. They don't turn up at 7.15. In, in Britain, you would never do that. That would be considered impolite if you did, because it's just possible that your, your host is running a little bit late. You give them at least 10 minutes grace, and you never get there on time. You always get there a little bit late. I remember when I was a student, I was invited to a rather fancy dinner at somebody's house, and it was a, a written invitation that I'd received and it said that the invitation was for seven for seven thirty and I didn't know what that meant so I asked one of my professors and he said it's very simple you get there at seven and then you will get a drink before dinner but dinner will be served at seven thirty whether you're there or not and if you get there at seven twenty you won't get the drink before dinner so I mean there's this whole codified thing about about how time was being uh, dictated fascinating do you have any closing thought on that? Uh, no, it's just, it just, um, I don't leave it open-ended. I, I think I, I said my, said my thoughts and now I have a lot to think about as well. So mm. I'm good. Thank you to all who participated in this Thought Lounge. To sign up for a Thought Lounge in your area, please visit thoughtlounge.org. Till next time, good thinking always. <laughs>